Celebrate with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and an extra special welcome to the 300th episode of the Robohub podcast. You might not know that the podcast has been going in one form or another for 14 years. Originally called Talking Robots, the podcast was started in 2006 by Dario Floriano, director of the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at EPFL in Switzerland. The official first episode of the Robots podcast was published back in 2008, and is still available to listen to at robohub.org forward slash podcast. Covering topics from AI, industrial, medical and personal robots, to robot ethics and STEM education, the podcast has gone from strength to strength since. While being run entirely by volunteers from all corners of the globe. So to celebrate 300 episodes of our podcast, we thought we would catch up with some of our former as well as current volunteers from around the world to find out why and how they got involved in the podcast, how their involvement impacted on their lives and careers, and what they're doing in their day jobs now. First up, Sabine Howard, one of Professor Floriano's former students, now assistant professor in the Bristol Robotics Laboratory at the University of Bristol in the UK. Sabine, whose work focuses on swarm robotics, is also acting president and co-founder of Robohub.org. She spoke to our interviewer, Lily. Hi, welcome to Robohub's podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, Lily. It's great to be speaking with you today. I'm Sabine Howard. I'm an associate professor in robotics at the University of Bristol in the Bristol Robotics Laboratory. And um, what is your research group doing? What are you working on? My lab engineers swarms. So if you look at birds and ants and bees, they can do these beautiful, complex behaviors. And we take inspiration from these swarms to engineer solutions for real-world uh, settings. So it could be engineering swarms of nanoparticles to treat tumors. It could be engineering swarms of thousands of little coin-sized robots to do things like environmental monitoring. Or it could be swarms that work in smaller numbers, but where the robots are much smarter and could, for example, learn to swarm on the go. So to design swarms, we really use two techniques. We use bioinspiration and we use machine learning so that we can do it automatically. And what are some of the, um, the applications of this research that you're particularly excited about? I actually think we're at the stage in swarming where we're ready to get out of the lab. So a lot of the work that we've done so far has been lab-based. And that's helped us understand how you can design swarms that work in huge numbers of robots. Uh, in terms of the hardware, it's helped us understand how you design the algorithms for these swarms. So we have the hardware in the brains, and really what we need to be doing is getting these swarms into the real world. So what we're, what we're focusing now on is really just two frontiers. One is the biomedical world. So anything small, nano, micro, you know, cells, particles, those things tend to work in huge, huge numbers. Uh, and so there's real potential in the biomedical field to understand how you design better nanomedicine, how you can consider antimicrobial resistance, um, how you can look at the behavior of cellular populations and maybe improve them so that you're avoiding certain diseases, um, all the way to the robot scale. And actually on the robot scale this summer, we spoke uh, with firefighters. We spoke with people who work in warehouses. We spoke with 
those who do bridge inspection, just to understand from their perspective, from the user's perspective, what they care about in terms of designing uh, robot swarms. Would they, you know, would they use them? What is their perception of them? What are what are the challenges and caveats? You know, what are the yes, I'd like them, but you know, what comes after that word? And actually, we got a lot of insight and a lot of encouragement in terms of people being ready to see these forms in reality if if we do it right. So it sounds like there's some level in where your research is at right now in like human involvement and getting getting to know what people are interested in. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, how you got involved in RoboHub, which is another element of like getting humans involved in robotics. It really started out when I was a PhD student over in Dario Floriano's lab over at uh, EPFL. Um, and he actually had the initial idea of a podcast. So this was back in 2006. And he, he started a podcast called Talking Robots. Um, and with that podcast, we'd interview people every two weeks. And we went all the way to having 45 episodes. Um, and at that time, we kind of had the feeling that we'd covered a lot of robotics. Uh, and so maybe that was sort of a natural end to talking robots. Uh, but, but many of us in the team were just really excited about this idea of a podcast and just could see an infinity of possibilities of new research fields that would continue to pop up, people we had chatted with. And so we launched uh, what is now the RoboHub podcast, but originally was the, the Robots podcast um, in 2008. So that's more than 10 years ago just as really a way to get the robotics community to tell the world what they were working on in their own voice. Um, so, you know, I'm so excited that uh, the RoboHub podcast is now celebrating its 300th episode because that's, that's just tons of people who we've helped, you know, communicate about their work and get their message out. So it really just started with this idea that we needed to tell the world what we were working on as roboticists in our own words and make sure that it had a wide reach, that we were actually having the impact that we wanted. And so that we could counter a little bit of the hype and the disinformation that was uh, somewhat prominent, uh, you know, in, in, in mainstream media. So this is just our way of getting our voice out. And I know that um, one of the things that's important to RoboHub is having technical people conducting the interviews on the question asking side. How do you think that that contributes? to the success of the podcast? I think it's helpful because we actually know the field of robotics. So we're looking at it from the inside and, and that'll change somewhat the questions that you ask. It allows you to know who's who in the field and also to contact them in, a, in an easier way. Uh, sort of see what's exciting from the inside. So it allows you to identify new frontiers and just you know bring, bring the latest and the greatest of what's happening in robotics to the outside world. Um, and it helps have a meaningful conversation. You know, when you're speaking with your peers, that just gets things flowing. Uh, and so I really think it has had an impact in terms of helping us, the robotics community, just, you know, make sure that we're finding the coolest and the newest things in robotics and getting it out to the real world through through in-depth conversations, really. Um, because if you do know robotics, you can have a little bit more of an in-depth conversation that gets to, to you know, the juicy questions about what's happening in our fields. Yeah, of course. And so since you um, started as a PhD student doing interviews, and now you're in the professor role, um, were there certain aspects of your involvement in RoboHub that sort of shaped your career path along those lines? I really think the podcast is, is maybe one of the most important things I've done uh, in my career. 
it's been so helpful in terms of helping me see what's happening in the field of robotics much more broadly than my niche PhD area. Uh, that's helped shape uh, the vision I have of the field of robotics and my own research going forward. It's helped me improve my communication skills. Um, it's helped me develop critical thinking because when you're uh, preparing your questions to chat with someone, you have to go over their field of, of research, you have to find the right questions to ask. So there's a lot of critical thinking in there and just conversational skills that are really useful on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it's just been really great in terms of, of community building. Um, you know, selfishly, you, you get to speak to the top people in your field and you have a really good excuse for sending them an email. Uh, and many people say yes. So I actually haven't had many people say, no, they can't do a podcast. Usually, usually professors are game. And so that just allows you to chat to, you know, with people you admire. So I, th I think it's been one of the most transformational things that I've done in my careers. And actually from the podcast uh, grew RoboHub uh, and the Robots Association. So, so beyond the podcast, there's a blog and website and videos uh, and more of a community built around that. So I'd say the podcast is the seed and the ongoing thing that's gone for over a decade, which is really the, you know, the shining star in everything that's being done as part of RoboHub. Um, but it's also allowed us, you know, give an example for other efforts around science communication and robotics. Um, and it's also allowed us to, you know, bring up a new wave of people working in SciComm in robotics. So Audra Nash, for example, um, who's the director of the podcast now, has just been doing a tremendous job of keeping the tradition going. And every two weeks a podcast comes out. And it's great to speak to people like you, Lily, just in terms of being the next uh, generation of podcasts and you know after 45 episodes we thought we'd covered it all and now we're seeing 300 episodes and actually there's still loads and loads to cover and that's just going to expand. Can you mention maybe one or two like particularly memorable episodes you've done or conversations you've had or connections you've made through RoboHub? I've enjoyed all my conversations so you always get something out of it, and everyone is, is so knowledgeable about their own field. You just always learn something that's really exciting. So I've loved hearing podcasts with Radhika Nagpal, with Cynthia Bazil, with uh, Ronnie Brooks, with Raft Andrea, um, just a lot of people that were my idols when I was a PhD student, and hearing them you know, tell the story of, of why they did the things they did and the research behind it was always super motivating. One thing that I really remember is at some point I did an episode, I can't even remember what, when it was or what podcast it was. It was very early days where I went around Boston. Um, I was just there on holidays. I was, it was just very random. Um, so I went around Boston with a microphone and I just asked random people what they thought about robotics and what the future of robotics uh, was or should be for them. And I remember going into an army recruitment station and just speaking to someone random in a coffee shop. Um, and just, just anyone I could cross paths with, I would be like, oh, what do you think of robots? And, you know, this was like probably nine, ten years ago. Um, and they have not been on their mind at that time. And just everyone was really willing to contribute an opinion about what they thought robots were. And I just really remember those conversations as being uh, useful and eye-opening. And actually one thing that... Um, I'm starting to do more and more of and that I think we need to do more of as a community is just listen to the public because so far it's been about researchers and roboticists putting the word out about what it is we do. 
but increasingly, I think we need to do the opposite. So I'd love to hear more people who will be the users of robotics tomorrow. Um, just tell us what they want uh, with these technologies and what their worries are and where they, they are excited and the potential they see in it, uh, just so we can design it right. Uh, so it's almost flipping the conversation slightly. And I guess that was just one instance and we did it in, in which we did that. And it was it was early days in terms of doing that. But I, I wonder if it's maybe a model going forward. It would definitely be a valuable thing to do again. It'd be really exciting. I think we'd be surprised. <laughs> and then I also just wanted to ask if there are any other um, podcasts or it doesn't even have to be robotics related or other news sites that you particularly love or check in on regularly. Besides the RoboHub podcast, I'm actually not very good at keeping on top of podcasts. Um, I do love IEEE Automaton blog. I think they do a great job covering robotics news. Um, and recently I did a, a podcast for the Santa Fe Institute. They have a, a new podcast on complexity, uh, which was really a mind-bending interview. And so I'd say watch that space. That looks like a really fun uh, one to be looking into as well. Um, you know, there needs to be more high-quality information about robotics and AI in general. So we try to do a bit of that at RoboHub. Um, but I think there's just so much space to improve it across the board. Uh, so I just hope that there's more of it. And if anything, seeing that the podcast has reached 300 episodes, I hope that encourages other to do, you know, their own podcasts or their own video series. Um, there's there's Robots in Depth, uh, for example, uh, which is really cool as well. Uh, so, it's, it's you know, it's been great to see the efforts uh, throughout the years in terms of science communication. There's just so much more space uh, to do more. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's pretty much all the time we have, but thank you so much for speaking with me. Sure, it's great speaking with you, Lily. Congratulations on the 300th episode. Thank you, you too. <laughs> Next up, our interviewer and current podcast president, Audro, caught up with Peter Dürr, who now leads a team in Switzerland focused on computer vision research whilst remaining active with the podcast by editing all of our episodes. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hi, Audro. Thanks for having me. Would you introduce yourself? Yes. My name is Peter Dürer, and I'm a co-founder of this podcast, so it's a special honor to be on this episode number 300. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about how you've been involved in the podcast? Yes, sure. So I have to go back all the way to 2006 to the uh, Talking Robots podcast, actually. And that was um, during our time at the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne. And uh, our PhD advisor at the time, Dario Floreano, he had this idea of uh, creating a podcast to expose ideas from robotics research to, to a broader audience. And I have to say, like many of Dario's ideas, I think this one was also quite insightful. I think it was a right moment to, to start this kind of activity. And he asked uh, Markus Weibel and Sabine Howard and me to, to work on this. And we are all still on the RoboHub team. And it's really, to me, unbelievable that we are now at episode 300 of the sequel to Talking Robots, that is the RoboHub podcast. Mm -hmm. And then what is your involvement? Like, what is your specific contribution? Yeah, so um, in the past, I had uh, played in uh, several bands and had a background in music. So from the beginning, I was interested in how to record 
uh, audio over telephone lines and then later over the internet and how to put together uh, the, the actual episodes. I also, uh, for better or worse, uh, made the jingles for the Talking Robots podcast and now the jingle you hear in every one of the 300 episodes of the RoboHub podcast. And what do you do now for work? So after finishing my PhD at DPFL, I went to Japan and joined the R&D department of Sony. I spent about six years in Japan. Amongst other, I also worked on a joint venture a company that we founded uh, called Aerosense, working on uh, industrial drones. And then about two years ago, I had the opportunity to come back to Switzerland and start a little research team here in Zurich. Mm -hmm. What do you do with your research team? We are working on uh, robotics algorithms, um, a lot of computer vision, new type of sensors, new type of uh, robots. Gotcha. And do you have a favorite interview from the podcast? Yes, I, I thought about this question uh, before this interview, actually, and I have to say, um, probably my all-time favorite is uh, in, in 2007. At the time, we had already interviewed a, a number of uh, really big names in robotics, but uh, then we had the opportunity to have an interview with another prize winner, uh, Gerald Edelman. And I remember Sabine and I, on the day of the recording, we were quite nervous how this would go and to take uh, 30 minutes of time uh, of a Nobel Prize winner. And I think, at least from my perspective, it was a really interesting conversation uh, that Sabine had. And uh, after that, we kind of felt, well, now we are in a place to ask almost everyone uh, for an interview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what a crazy moment. Uh, lastly, wrapping up, what advice do you have for a starting grad student? Well, based on my experience, it's uh, maybe a bit outside your uh, primary area and outside your, your focus, but that gives you an opportunity to collaborate with people all over the world and be exposed to, to new ideas. So I think for me, just by uh, editing these interviews over all these years, I was exposed to so many ideas that directly benefited my research and my vision of, of robotics has helped me tremendously. And moreover, I've met so many great people thanks to uh, uh, RoboHub and the association, the podcast that I would recommend to everyone to join this kind of activity. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you to you. It was a pleasure. And last, but definitely not least, Andra Key, Managing Director of Nonprofit Industry Group Silicon Valley Robotics and long-standing member of RoboHub. She spoke to our interviewer Lauren about her company and women in robotics. So, Andra, as well as being a central RoboHub team member, you are a leader in robotics industry and innovation, managing director of Silicon Valley Robotics. You founded the Robot Launch Startup Competition, a makerspace, a women in robotics group. Can you tell us what drives your passion for robotics? Uh, it's a great question because there are a lot of answers and I think what that's my passion for robotics is my age uh, in many ways because I was a, a child of the 60s uh, 
sadly not in the hippie sense, but in that I grew up where the moon launch and landing was such a big part of my understanding of what the world we lived in was about. And it was about how we were going to use science and technology to solve every problem. And then as I've gotten older, I've seen how we have a lot of problems that we haven't yet addressed with science and technology. And indeed, technology itself can become the problem. So I went from being a really, really early adopter of internet to finding that the groups and the community that built up on the internet was just not, it was actually horrible to be part of as a woman. And I thought, what, what is this like when you feel like the new technologies, when the technologies of the future have no space for you. This was a really profound experience for me, and I think it was more than just the internet. Uh, so I come from a space of saying, on the one hand, I love exploring technologies of the future, and on the other hand, I experience feeling excluded from technologies of the future. And I've had a couple of careers and uh, four children, so that allowed me to kind of do a reset my careers that were based around uh, computers, databases, um, filmmaking, um, all of those technologies were, I was able to put that on hold at going back to university because, you know, I had children. I was going to have to take some time. And I decided that this, this is really precious time. When I first went through university, I had all the time in the world, but now I thought I'm squeezing precious hours out of working and bringing up children. I have to make studying count for something. So I thought really hard about how to extract the most value possible from what I would study. And I thought I want to look into the future and pick the technology of the future at the time when it's still emerging, when it's not the common pathway. So naturally, that was robotics. And I think that all of us who were involved in robotics 10 to 20 years ago were in a really unique position where we could see all the signs that it was about to achieve major adoption, that robots were rolling out into the real world. And even though it's in dribs and drabs, and as we Lynn Gibson says, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. We are starting to see the rollout. And, you know, I've seen just in the last eight years an exponential curve in the amount of investment into robot startups. And indeed, one of the reasons that I've focused on robot startups and am the managing director of Silicon Valley Robotics is having come from a social science perspective and studied human robot interaction. I thought these are powerless disciplines, really. The reason that robots will roll out in the world isn't how you design them and how you create them. It's how you fund them and what things you fund them for. So the funding of robotics became my major area of interest. And it just happened to time really well that the robotics companies in Silicon Valley had 
come together and said, we need to have some kind of common presence. We need to promote ourselves. We need to get funding. And there was, when we started, there was less than a quarter of a million dollars going into investment in robotics per year. Last year, there was $18.4 billion. Wow. So we have had an exponential curve there. And everybody started to notice that around about 2015. But for those of us who were really up close, we, we could see the potential happening around 2011, 2012. And as said, the robotics companies in the Bay Area came together to say, we need to try and push getting more investment into robotics companies. We need to learn how to be better startups. And that was when I joined. And really, that was exactly what I wanted to study and understand. But things have changed since 2015. We're now focusing on how do we deploy robotics in certain sectors, not just how do we deploy robotics generally, but there is sufficient activity now for it to be really important as what is a retail robot versus what is a health robot versus what is an agricultural robot or a food handling robot? And each of these industries is a different industry. So you can see how just the domain has shifted in the last 10 years. But I've always been very conscious of having, I guess, a full stack of understanding. I wanted to know how to understand the rollout of robots in the real world And it's also critically important to me to understand how to build inclusion so that we don't have people excluded from the spread of technology, which is one of the reasons why I've started a makerspace. And it's one of the reasons why I started Women in Robotics, because we need to be effectively doing experiments. We need to be testing assumptions and looking for the... um, methods that we can use to just shift the balance. We're at a really great time when the robotics industry is small enough for reasonably small actions, hopefully, to shift the balance. And I think I've seen that with the growth of women in robotics as a global organization now. We now have a formal board and there are groups in Last I checked, there were 16 groups, and I'm hearing from two more, and they're spread over every continent. So that's a really exciting thing. Yeah, that's great to hear. And it seems like, you know, you have such broad expertise that you use to drive real change within multiple different areas of robotics and also, you know, in the inclusion space. How did you build up this skill set to be so diverse and yet so effective? Because I think it's something that a lot of, you know, budding roboticists are looking to to accomplish. Can you tell us a little bit about how you developed this type of expertise? You know, that is a question that I really like because there's an answer there that I think isn't coming into the common discourse And it's very important now that, for example, ethics is becoming a very popular topic because we all have emotions, we all want to be ethical, and we all identify as humans. And that makes us 
very involved in the answers, but it doesn't make us experts. So one of the reasons that you get, um, you find people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk talking about the future of AI, and you go, well, this is out of their wheelhouse. They might have opinions, but they're not experts. And so all of these topics around women in robotics and ethical robotics, everyone has opinions, and their opinions are really authentic, and their life experience is authentic, but it doesn't make them experts. And I realize that I've done a heck of a lot of training in becoming an expert in these areas, and that includes the practical kind of training that you get as a parent, being involved in school fundraising, uh, liaising with people and building networks to try and support activities there, to managing kids' sports teams. And I have to say managing children's sports teams, especially mixed teams, was a fantastic way for me to learn a lot of on-the-ground skills around diversity and how to counter just um, the habitual way that things were getting done. But it was the fact that I did a whole degree in understanding culture and communications that gave me a lot of tools and the fact that I've always been fascinated by, uh, I guess, the social aspects of technology. So I've studied regardless of I've studied these things. I'm not a feminist because I feel like a feminist. I'm a feminist because I've studied feminism, what it means, what it is fighting for and against. And I think we can all be feminists, but we don't always have an expert or informed opinion. And that's the same thing that's happening with this rise of ethics for robots or ethics for AI and autonomous systems everywhere, is that really there's a lot of virtue signaling. And everybody is saying, oh, hey, we want to be in the club that cares about these things. But caring about these things is not the same thing as actually doing the research or building up an expert committee or having expert plans. I'm overusing the word expert now, but I think that this is a difference that people don't really get. And so I'm not doing women's things because I'm a woman. I'm doing these things because I have spent a long time trying to work out why different groups in society get treated differently, and women just happen to be the name of one of those groups, and then looking at the mechanisms to try to create a better balance. And that happens to be the activities that I'm doing right now. Right. So it's not one experience or one degree that got you into this space, but really years and years of studying and refining your skill set in in all these different areas both technical and social that has allowed you to make the types of contributions that you've been making oh yes I have learned a lot of things that don't work which really comes down to you know I've learned 10,000 ways that things don't change and I want to be a change maker not a protester so what do you hope will be your main contribution to the field of robotics I think women in robotics is a really great start, but it comes from a place that would like to develop an ethical framework 
for robotics, AI, and autonomous systems that is not a set of proclamations. It's actually a framework that people can utilize. And perhaps it's bringing together some of the best practices in the various movements that are happening right now. But a lot of times, you know, we, we get told what should happen. We don't get told how to make it happen. And I think I've got an opportunity to create better blueprints for how to develop a more, a fairer robotic and AI that's when I'm optimistic because there are some days when I look at how rapidly problems are emerging with, in, for example, implicit bias in AI and knowing that those things get baked into robotics. Sometimes I worry that some of these negative uh, aspects are just compounding too rapidly. But at the same time, if we want to change, then we focus on the things that we can change. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us today. And thank you for your all of your work at RoboHub. Uh, well, RoboHub was such a pleasure to work on. It's really, RoboHub has been fantastic. It's bringing together wonderful people who are fascinated by robotics, but also fascinated by how to transfer robots from the research world into society. And that's exactly what I'm really interested in. So RoboHub has been an absolute pleasure. And that concludes our celebratory 300th episode and 2019 festive special. We're really proud to have been going and growing for 14 years and we wouldn't be here without all of you. So thank you all Whenever you started listening, we hope you enjoy our episodes and will tune in for many years to come. For now, we wish you an enjoyable festive season and a great start to the new year. We'll be back with our first episode of 2020 in around two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye! Celebrate with RoboHub the podcast for news and views on robotics.